Hebrews chapter 2. We read that portion of scripture, verses 9 through to 18. Let me tell you of the objection of the Jews to Christianity. It is clear that the Jews did not receive the Lord Jesus. They rejected the Christian faith. And their rejection of the Christian faith was an objection against Jesus of Nazareth. That he was a man, they said. And a man is less than angels. He couldn't be greater than angels because he's just a man. They said he's not even greater than Moses. Remember how the Jews said, we know that God spake by Moses. But as for this man, we know not from whence he is. And then you remember how they said, are you greater than our father Abraham? So they didn't even believe that he was greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, and they're not going to believe he's greater than the angels. And so there's this objection. He's just a man. That's all. Not only that, he did what all men do. He died. All men die. Angels don't die. Men die. So how could men be greater than angels? How could Jesus of Nazareth be greater than angels? When he died. Not only did he die, but he died the shameful death of the cross. He died a cursed death, being impaled on a tree. How could he be greater than angels? And so there was this objection. You call him Lord, you Christians. You trust in him, you believe in him, you worship him. But he's just a man who died in a shameful way. Yes, you say he's risen. You want to believe that. But we only have your word for that. The facts are these. Jesus is a man. And Jesus died on the cross. And he cannot therefore be greater even than the angels because of those simple facts. Let alone be Lord of all who you believe in and worship. So that was our objection to Christianity. Christ's humanity. Christ's death. And what Paul does is not to deny these things. He doesn't deny that Jesus is a man. Nor does he deny that Jesus was crucified. That he suffered. Those are facts upon which Jews and Christians can all agree. There's no debate about those matters. Even the Jews accepted those things. And Paul doesn't deny those things. Of course he doesn't. But what Paul wants to do in this portion is to show why he is a man. To show why he died. And why he died the death that he did die. This is what the apostle wants to do. So he's showing that his humanity and his sufferings do not cancel in any way nor mar in any form this truth that he is greater than angels, that he is superior to angels. For the simple reason, there were reasons for him being a man and there were reasons for him dying on the cross. There were reasons for this humiliation which angels cannot 
experience. There were reasons why Jesus had to experience these things. You understand what I'm saying? He doesn't deny the humiliation, but he teaches that the humiliation of Jesus was necessary for sinners, necessary in the will of God. So yes, verse 9, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Now that word little, it could refer to the degree or position. Less in power, less in dignity and glory. Jesus had to sleep, angels don't have to sleep. Angels don't have to eat, Jesus had to eat. Angels don't sweat and toil whenever they do work. But Jesus did. The angels don't face trials, but Jesus did. Uh, And all of these things are true of him. He's lower than the angels because of those things. But also it may be a reference to time. Sometimes this word a little is used to explain time span. A little time for a little lower than the angels. So it may be a reference to time. In other words, he became a man made lower than angels for a little time in order to experience the suffering of death. So this time span, this little time span of his earthly pilgrimage was in order to suffer. It was in order to die. You see how he's explaining the sufferings? Giving the reasons for them? This is what this portion is is about. You see, there is a purpose. There is a plan in it all. There are reasons for his humiliation. You see, the sad thing is, and it even takes place today, there are many who use Christ's humiliation against him. And that's sad when that happens. They weaponize his condescension against him. They say he's a man, he suffered, he died, therefore he cannot be Lord. He cannot be Lord of all, he cannot be Lord of glory because he's just a man and he died the way that he did. And that's what the Jews did. They, They weaponized his humiliation against him. And not only the Jews do it, all rejectors of Christianity do it. He was a man, he died on the cross, a shameful death. How could he be God? How could he be Lord of all? And so they, they use this against him. He can't be God. He, he can't be the resurrection and the life. He can't be the, the eternal life who came into the world if he, did, if he died and is a man. And not only was it a problem with Jews, it was a problem with Gentile pagans too. They couldn't accept this. Now, they could accept the concept of gods among men. They could even accept the the concept of gods being born among men. There were pagans who taught that, pagans who believed that, that gods could come down in the form of men, could even be born of of a a man-woman relationship. But they could not accept virgin birth. And they could not accept that such a God would be crucified. That they couldn't accept. Not even the pagan Gentiles who had some form of understanding of a God walking among men. 
but they would never believe that the Roman state would crucify such a God. That such a God would allow himself to be crucified. And it would be an unthinkable thought that in his being crucified and dying, he would be a saviour, a deliverer God. They could never accept that. So it was an offence to pagans, and it was offence to Jews. A crucified man, a saviour, lord of glory. This was unacceptable. And Paul found this everywhere he went. He said, we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block. Unto the Greeks foolishness. Christianity, however, does not just teach Jesus was a man and that Jesus died. Christianity teaches he became a man. He took manhood. He took flesh in order to die for the suffering of death made a little for a little time or a little lower than the angels for the express purpose of suffering death. So he did that in order to the death that he might give himself in death that he might give himself a sacrifice for the life of the world. So Christ Jesus was not humiliated. He humbled himself. His will was in it. There was reason and purpose in it. Whenever we become men, we we just are born, and there's no will in it, there's no purpose in it, as far as we're concerned. We're born. But he wasn't just born. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He took flesh. He didn't take the nature of angels. He took the nature of man. He took the seed of Abraham. So Christ humbled himself. Paul puts it this way in his well-known portion in Philippians 2. Christ was in the form of God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation. He took upon him. He did it himself by his own volition. He took upon him the form of a servant. And was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man. He continued this humbling himself. Throughout his whole life. Until the death of the cross. He humbled himself. It was a a voluntary humiliation. And this self-humbling was necessary for us sinners. It is therefore, you see, very wicked to use his humiliation against him. His supreme deity to deny that because he was a man and because he died on the cross. It's wickedness because it was his self-humbling. Sometimes stories have been told of kings who wanted to mingle among the common people. There are stories of that in history. There are certainly novels that have been written upon such a theme. And the king or the prince or whatever, he would secretly go out at night dressed maybe in the garb of the people, the poor. And he would go out 
quietly at night and end up being humbled, not being treated as a king, not being treated as a prince, because his kingly glory is concealed. He's dressed as a pauper. He's in the street with the poor. But there he is. He looks like a poor man, but he's a king. But no one believes it because no one sees it. It's concealed, it's hidden, it's not revealed. And that's the way it was with our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the King of glory. He's the Lord of glory. He was in the palace above, but he put on the garb of a man. He came into the world. He walked the streets of Galilee, the towns and cities of Galilee. His Godhead was veiled. And he was subjected to the humiliation that came with that. Despised and rejected of men. And no one saw the Lord of glory. Had they seen that, there's no doubt about it. They wouldn't have crucified him. The Bible says that. They wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory if they saw that. But he's in humanity. His Godhead is veiled. It's concealed. But why did the Lord do this? Why did he come among men? Why did he put on the garb of a poor man? Why did he humble himself? Why did he let himself be made a little lower than the angels? And hang upon a cross in, in all this nakedness? Why, why did he do that? If it's a self-humbling. And that's what Paul is dealing with in this portion of scripture. And by dealing with it. He's getting to the very heart of the gospel. This portion of scripture is the very heart of the gospel. It's a very important chapter. There's so much in it. There are different avenues opening up in all kinds of directions uh, that are beneficial, no doubt, for Christian instruction. The overriding main theme is that necessity of his humiliation being made a little lower than the angels, and the suffering of death. We are not to deride him, congregation, in his humiliation. We are not to weaponize that against him, but rather the opposite. We adore him all the more for his humiliation, for his self-humbling. We love him the more immensely because of it. When we understand it. Those of us who are Christians and who believe this. This is the magnetism. This self-humbling. This is the magnetism that draws us to him. That makes our hearts warm towards him. This makes us worship him with even more fervor and zeal. Because we see this is all our salvation. That he did this for us. So we do not dare weaponize it against him. We worship and adore him because of it. We've been studying the book of the Revelation. And you see in that book that in heaven. They don't have any problem with his humiliation there. Because we read that in the midst of the throne. There stood a lamb. As it had been slain. The visibility of his humiliation. He bears the scars. He bears the evidence and proof. Of impalement on the tree. And they don't weaponize that against him. They worship him because of that. 
the lamb slain is in the midst of the throne. The lamb slain has the glory. The lamb slain has all the worship of men and of angels. So we read that the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands. And they're saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. So the humiliation isn't a problem to them in heaven. They sing the greatest song in the whole cosmos because of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. They adore him. They worship him because he was impaled on the tree for them. And that's the Christian teaching. And of course that's only received by faith. It's only when the Lord works in your heart and opens your eyes and you begin to believe the Bible that you see this. And that's why we read the count tonight of the Lord washing the disciples' feet. Because he sought to instill in them a sense of the necessity of his humiliation. He knew that he come from the Father. He knew that he was their Master and Lord. He knew that he was the one who had everything in his hands as the Lord of glory. And knowing that, he got up from the table. And he, having laid aside his outer garments, he put on a towel. He girded himself with this towel. Because he's taking the form of a servant. He's going to serve now. He's going to wash and dry people's feet now. He's going to stoop and clean the dirt and the dust from people's feet now. This is the Lord. But he takes off the glory garments. He puts on the servant garments, the towel. And he goes about from staple to staple. And he says, do you know what I have done to you? I am your Lord and Master. You call me that and you do well. You're right. But do you know what I have done to you? It was just a ceremony. But he was showing them there is no washing away of their sins, no cleansing and purifying of them unless he does this self-humbling for them. Unless he lays aside his glory and takes upon him the form of a servant. The self-humbling was necessary for us. And this is what the Apostle is dealing with. Now as we explore the necessity of Christ's humiliation, I leave with you some points. We'll go through these quite quickly. Let me say, first of all, that it was necessary because the sovereign God planned it. God sent forth his Son. That's the explanation. You have it there in chapter 2, verse 10. It became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons on to glory, to make the captain of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through sufferings. Not without sufferings. Not without being a man. It became him. This is the Father. It became the Father. It became him who makes all things, who holds all things up, He's the sovereign God. The Bible says the Lord made all things. 
Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive the glory and honor, for thou hast made all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Why does the apostle say this? It became him who made all things, and for whom is everything? He's telling us the sovereign God. It was this sovereign God's plan. It was this sovereign God's purpose. It was his business. It was God's design. It became him. That was, it was fitting to him. It was ordained by him. Now it wasn't necessary for God because God didn't have to send his son into the world. He didn't have to send Christ. But it became him. That means it was comely to him. It was his desire. It was his will and purpose of grace. In order to bring the sons to glory. It was his will. His desire. It was comely to him. That's what it means. And so to weaponize Christ's humiliation against him. Is to attack God the Father himself. Because the humiliation of Christ was comely to the Father. It was good to the Father. It was desirable to the Father. It was planned by the Father. It was executed by the Father when he sent him into the world. So to use Christ's humility against him is to question the divine sovereignty, the divine plan, to question the moral governor of the whole universe, the one who made all and upholds all. It was God's plan to do this. It was God's will. In fact, we could say that's why he made the world. That's why he ordained the fall of man into sin at all. For this plan, for this self-humbling, so that the glory of God might be revealed in it all. It became him. And so it was necessary because of that sovereign will of God. And to weaponize it against Christ's humiliation is to attack God's wisdom to attack God's love and grace and God's plan. He who dishonors the Son, who humbled himself, dishonors the Father who sent Christ into the world. Those people who beat Christ with his humiliation have to know that they are beating the Father who sent him. And it's necessary also, secondly, not only because it was God's comely will, it was necessary also because we are men. We are men under sentence of death. And God loves us men, sinners under sentence of death. And we need a man to save us. We need one to stand in our place to save us. And so verse 14, for as much then as the children, the sons that are going to be made, brought to glory, what, what are we as, as those that are to go to glory? What are we? We're flesh and blood. We're partakers of flesh and blood. We're men. And so for as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. You see, he wasn't born like us. You know, from our mom and dad, going down the generations, he was born of a virgin. We partake of 
the flesh and blood, but he voluntarily partook of it. The same by his own volition that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So you see, we're men, we're men of flesh and blood, we're under the power of darkness, we're in Satan's kingdom, we're in his dungeons. And the fall has brought us into a helpless, a hopeless and a deplorable state. And you see that two things are necessary for our deliverance. Two things that unbelievers use against Christ. First of all, it was necessary that he took flesh and blood. It was necessary that he become a man. It was necessary that he be made a man. It was necessary that he be made lower than the angels because men are lower than the angels. Flesh and blood he had to take because that's what we are in the dungeon house of Satan. He had to come down in flesh and blood. Verily he did not take on him the nature of angels. Verse 16. What's the point in taking the nature of angels? We don't have angelic nature, do we? The angels aren't going to be saved. Even the fallen angels aren't going to be saved. They're not going to be redeemed. He didn't take their nature and go and redeem them. No, he took our nature to come and redeem us. He took on him the seed of Abraham. Not only did he take flesh and blood, he took it that through death, he might destroy him. So he went through death. He tasted death, as it says there in verse 9, that he might taste death for every man, that he might experience, that he might enter into its depths. And that's what the Bible teaches. The Word was made flesh. He took flesh and blood. The law couldn't save us. The law is weak. It's not able to save us. What does God do? He sends his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And for sin, condemn sin in the flesh. And so the devil's power can only be broken by the blood of the Lamb. And to have blood, he had to take flesh and blood. He had to take flesh and blood to shed it. He had to take flesh and blood that that flesh might be broken up for us in our redemption. We are men. He must become man. And then thirdly, it was necessary in order for Christ to be a perfect and a complete saviour for us. Verse 10, For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons on to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect. And underline it, through sufferings. He can only be a perfect saviour, not sitting up there in heaven in his divine nature alone. He can only be a perfect saviour for us through sufferings, through death. A perfect saviour. A saviour perfected. With all that is needful for our salvation. For all that is necessary to bring the many sons to glory. And those sons are men. And those sons are not easy to save. 
And those sons will require an all-sufficient Savior. An all-perfect Savior. And he cannot be that without being a man and without going through the sufferings of death. This is the heart of the gospel. Every Christian should know this. Every Christian believes this. Every Christian trusts in this. Every Christian loves Jesus Christ for this. This is what binds us to him. This is what makes us to worship and adore him. And so he cannot be a perfect saviour without being a man. A true man. And his humanity is so sweet. And a wonderful meditation in itself for your whole life long and all eternity. He's only a perfect saviour because of his incarnation and death. If he had not been man, he would not be a saviour at all. And we'd go to hell like the demons. And if he had been man and not died a sacrifice on the cross, we would not have been saved at all. We had to go to hell like the demons. What did Jesus say? Behold, I cast out devils and I do cures today and tomorrow. And the third day. He's talking about his death and resurrection. The third day, I'll be perfected. I'll be a perfect saviour for my people. I'll be perfected. And that's what he meant when he said, it is finished. I'm the perfected saviour now. It was necessary, fourthly and lastly, that he take flesh and blood and suffer, not just to be a perfect saviour, But it was necessary for him to be, and listen to this carefully, a merciful and faithful high priest. What does he say there in verse 17? In all things it behoved him. Here's this necessity again. This necessity of the incarnation. It behoved him to be made like unto his brethren. Flesh and blood and suffering for them. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered. Being tempted. He is able to succor them. That are tempted. You see. To be an all perfect saviour. He had to become. An all tender man. An all tender man. Experiencing what we experience. The temptations, the trials, the toil, the tears, the hardships, the worries, the cares, the concerns, the agonies. And to bear sin, though he had no sin in himself, he did not have that experience of being a sinner. But he came as close to us as possibly he could without being contaminated by sin. And that has made him a tender man. A merciful high priest. He has experimental knowledge in his humanity. What does the apostle say later on? He deals with this subject in more detail later on. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Not just touched with the knowledge of them as one omniscient. But he's touched with the feeling of them. He feels them. 
He knows what they feel like. Because he was made like his brethren. He knows why they cry. He knows why they pray unto God their Father in the agony of their soul. He knows what succor he needed in his humanity. And he knows the succor that they need. This is why he took flesh and blood. To be not just a perfect saviour. But a tender saviour. A kind saviour. A merciful high priest. A faithful high priest. Who knows. And so he felt the acuteness. Of human suffering. And he is able to gauge. And to feel. Our sorrows as his people. Because. He was made flesh and blood. And went through sufferings. This is wonderful. Of Jesus. You see then the necessity of the condescension. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does this mean then, very quickly in closing? Well, it means God loves sinners when he found this a comely thing to do, to send his Son into the world like this. He loves sinners. That he would provide a Savior, that he is so gracious as to provide a perfect Savior In the grace of God, tasting death. Christ in his love for sinners has come in his self-humiliation. And the Father in his love for sinners has sent him. And you can have him. And you can come to Christ. And you must do so. You must do so. Because it also means that there is no one else. There is no other saviour. There is no other captain and pioneer of salvation. There is no other author and finisher of faith. There is no other merciful and faithful high priest. There is no one else able to succor us the way that he is. There are no works that you can do. There is no church that can take his place. There is nothing else. There is only this Savior. This Savior made perfect for us. In his incarnation and death. How shall you escape if you neglect so great salvation that came to us by this means? How shall you escape if you neglect it? Is not your judgment eternally just if you do neglect it and despise it and weaponize his humiliation against him? How shall you escape? So believe the gospel and thou shalt be saved.